Welcome to episode 112 of Primary Care Update. I'm Kate Rowland, a family physician and associate professor at Rush University. Hi, I'm Dr. Gary Ferencik, a professor of medicine at Michigan State University. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. On this day in history, 1928, guess what happened, folks? Revolutionary. Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. Changed an awful lot, and it's related to at least one of our poems in just a little bit. Our colleague Mark Abel is in Ireland. His, uh, he was attending a conference in Copenhagen, and his wife is attending a conference in Dublin. And so he is now enjoying probably some adult beverages and some um, Irish delicacies. And I also want to put in a plug that next week, Gary and I, along with our colleague Heather Laird Fick, on October 7th, are speaking at an essential evidence course for the Michigan Academy of Family Physicians. It's both live and virtual. So if you are interested in participating, go to the Michigan Academy of Family Physicians website and check it out. On this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters, or POEMS. If you want all the poems, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a poem a day, plus a great primary care reference with over 800 disease and symptom chapters and thousands of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of us, the commentators, and this podcast does not represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. For a nominal annual fee, you can receive CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians just for listening to this podcast and many others. Just go to IAFP.com, click on the online IAFP education webpage button, and then find our podcast. This week, we will discuss point of care respiratory panels for children, outcomes of controlling fever in adults, and SGLT2 inhibitors and heart failure. Usually there is a brief pause and then I get to talk, but instead I'm just going to keep talking this week. This is, it's kind of a me heavy podcast because I also have the quiz. So I hope you all enjoy the sound of my voice. Uh, So maybe a year ago, we talked about a poem that talked about the outcomes of when a hospital system switched from doing old school stool cultures and OVA and parasite studies to the faster PCR tests in kids who came in, presented the hospital with diarrhea. And what they found was a substantial increase in the rate of tests that were ordered. And more than half of the results showed just viral pathogens, because that's what kids who have diarrhea have. Very few of the kids needed any kind of antimicrobial treatment because of bacterial parasitic infections. And for those kids, the time to treatment was substantially faster by almost like 24 hours. And the length of stay for admitted kids was also substantially less. But because so many more tests were ordered, the costs of care were actually the same. So that was the, the old poem. So with that background, the study that I have today was a randomized trial of children who presented to a pediatric emergency department with fever or any kind of respiratory signs or symptoms. What they did in this study is they had about 1,200 patients, average age was about three, and they were randomized in a two-to-one ratio to either getting a viral PCR point of care testing upon arrival or usual care. And if the the physicians in the ED ordered a viral PCR panel, they didn't get the results for 24 hours. So they had to make their decisions in the ED based on sort of everything else that they had, but not a viral PCR. The PCR test could identify 18 respiratory viruses. Many of us are familiar with them. They're sort of widely used. 
uh, three bacteria, results available within just over an hour, 70 minutes. Kids in that usual care group underwent testing, including again, that same PCR test at the discretion of the ED physician. Um, they could have rapid uh, flu tests, they had rapid RSV tests, uh, results were available within a few hours, and they had complete follow-up for every single one of those participants, uh, because I believe the study was done um, in Finland, where they have an excellent national health system. Um, about 3% of the participants had flu. The most common pathogens, unsurprisingly, were regular viruses, rhinoviruses, enteroviruses, RSV, adenoviruses. So what they found, and this is astonishing, um, is that the PCR point of care tests did not significantly reduce the primary outcome of antibiotic prescriptions between no. the control oh. groups. Uh, it was 27% uh, in the intervention group, 28.5% in the control group. Uh, acute otitis and pneumonia were the most common diagnoses associated with antibiotic prescription. They were diagnosed in the same proportion in both groups. Um, ED length of stay was 13 minutes different. Um, no differences at all in anything that they studied. They had a million outcomes. It was exactly the same. So having better informa diagnostic information just made absolutely no difference in what happened to these kids uh, during their ED stay. They looked at numbers of diagnostic tests, uh, radiology images ordered, hospital admissions, ED returns, costs of care was actually the same in both these groups. Um, so again, having this additional information just made no difference in what the ED physicians either ordered or diagnosed. Uh, I thought this was just a, a fascinating one. Henry, what do you think? Well, this is just a long, same old sad story that we've heard over and over again. Uh, first of all, this took place in an emergency department. And of all of the outcomes uh, that you reported, uh, the 13-minute reduced uh, stay in the emergency department is probably an important process measure for the emergency department in terms of throughput of patients and the like. And so, you know, that may be important to them, but in terms of antibiotic stewardship, outcomes for patients, things of that nature makes no difference. And, and I really step back a little bit and think about all of the various studies that we've done that show either no effect or negligible effect about the only thing that I've seen are the wait and see prescribing that makes a, a real difference. Everything else, it's like the decisions have already been predetermined and don't bother me with any facts or data. You know, I, I know what I want to do and I want to get this person out or I know better. I think there's something going on and I don't trust the results of the test because it's only evaluating 13 pathogens. So, you know, it's this, this bizarre combination of that kind of thinking, patient expectations um, that has led to this phenomenon that our colleagues, uh, Rick Bucata and Jerry Hoffman have referred to as feeding the bears, right? So you, you, you feed them once and they just keep coming back over and over and over again. They keep coming back earlier and earlier. And then when you stop feeding them, they turn on you. So au contraire, I mean, I think clinical gestalt matters. When I look at these, otitis media, to what degree would you expect the pathogens from a nasal, was, I'm presuming this PCR was nasopharyngeal, uh, Kate, and, you know, to what degree is there homology between the nasopharyngeal and the, you know, middle ear uh, bacteriology? Uh, you know, I could probably make a case that probably the pneumonia cases, which were the more common diagnoses and those who got uh, antibiotics, might have been more consistent with what showed up in that. But uh, don't you think clinical gestalt matters? 
I think clinical ear gestalt matters, but we actually have data with real ear, um, ear aspiration in this era of immunizations where we've pretty much wiped out virtually all significant bacterial pathogens that might cause otitis media. You know, we, we just really don't have a good argument uh, for, for using them for otitis media. For pneumonia, no, I, I, I think you know, it's, it's different, especially if you're in the emergency department where you have sort of that worst case scenario mentality that, oh, I don't want to have a patient crump uh, because I chose not to give them an antibiotic for their pneumonia. You know, and the glass is a little half full because if you look at it, only a quarter of all patients got an antibiotic. It's just that the uh, multiplex testing didn't really influence that at all. So three quarters of those patients actually did not receive an antibiotic. So um, anyways, the glass is half full there, Henry. And I'll just uh, briefly say, I just I quickly checked on this. The average length of stay was about 190 minutes. So that 13 minute reduction, just to put that in, in perspective. So, all right. Um, again, I'm, I'm just going to keep talking because I do have the quiz today. Um, and this is something that I pulled um, from the news, uh, this was sort of burst across the um, the online news in the last 24 hours, so I thought I would bring it up. So this is a research letter that was published in JAMA Pediatrics, which found evidence of mRNA particles being present in breast milk up to 48 hours after lactating patients receive either a Pfizer or a Moderna COVID vaccination, one of the mRNA vaccines. The letter reported that seven of the 131 samples from 11 patients had detectable particles in the breast milk. The average concentration of particles ranged from 1.3 to 11.7 picograms per milliliter. The quiz question today is, what does this translate to in understandable terms? A, breastfeeding parents should avoid the mRNA vaccines. B, breastfeeding parents who do get an mRNA vaccine, vaccine should pump and dump for 48 hours afterwards. C, babies are being poisoned. D, everyone should be very afraid. Or E, there is no obvious clinical harm. Stay tuned for the answer. Be afraid, be very, very afraid. <laughs> uh, we're always worried about baby poison, no matter what the... Uh, but Henry, tell us about treating, uh, treating fevers in adults. So thank you, Kate. Uh, this paper by Holgerson and colleagues was published in DMJ um, earlier this year. And it asks the question as to whether treating fever in adults affects mortality, adverse effects, or quality of life. Now, the authors say that they searched, quote, all relevant database. This was their words. When you look, they actually looked at a reasonable number of databases. There were five of them and, and uh, clinical trials registries. And they were looking for randomized trials that compared treatment of fever for any cause against no treatment. And the studies that they found, there were 42 of them with just over 5,000 adults, looked at a variety of antipyretics as well as physical cooling methods. And the studies included ambulatory patients, hospitalized patients, and critically, adult, uh, critically ill adults. And they may have had uh, fever from infection, but also potentially from other causes. Now, when they stepped back and they looked at the risk of bias of the studies, none of the studies were at low risk of bias. Okay, so generally speaking, we, when we see studies that are at moderate or high risk of bias, they tend to make the interventions look more effective than perhaps they really are. What did they find? Well, they found that 
<clears throat> fever control had no effect on uh, the risk of death. The odds ratio was 1.04, which, by the way, is a 4% increased risk of death in those who were, were treated. And you can't argue that that's because of um, channeling effects or selection because these were randomized trials. But that was not statistically significant. By the way, there was also no risk of serious adverse events. And they also didn't see any real uh, difference in the rate of non-serious events. Now, the previous, the other data uh, were really quite robust and homogeneous. Now, this non-serious event um, was actually quite variable. The I-squared was 67%. So, uh, bottom line was that, oh, by the way, they, the authors did not report on cure. Okay? It was just those outcomes that they were looking at. So, Bottom line, it doesn't look like treating symptomatic fever affects mortality or serious adverse events, and probably nothing really important. You know, more importantly, that uh, we, meaning the healthcare um, industry and big pharma, we've been very effective in creating a new disease that I call fever phobia that has resulted in many visits to offices, urgent cares, and emergency rooms, as well as lots of missed work and both direct and indirect expenditures due to the pursuit of both the cause and treatment and management of, um, of fever. So that doesn't mean that if you've got a person, especially a child or an adult who is just physically uncomfortable with their fever, that's when you probably should be treating them with acetaminophen or low-dose NSAIDs. Kate, what do you think? Yeah, I think you, you've left off right where I was going to sort of ask a question, which is I can't actually tell if this study was looking at the, the risks or the harms of potentially treating a fever, because I certainly know, you know, some, some folks who have a sense that like the fever may be beneficial and that, it, you know, this certainly speaks against that. They're sort of saying like, go ahead and treat the fever or whether it was, you know, looking to see, is it, is it harmful to have especially a low grade fever? Um, and it just, that also seems to be sort of blown out of the water by this one, which is go ahead and treat the fever when, when they have it. There's no, you know, it's a pathologic uh, finding, but it's also not, you know, terribly pathologic on its own, you know, treat the underlying cause to the extent we can, but, um, you know, it's, it's somewhat a physiologic, pathologic, but physiologic process. Um, people have been having fevers for a long time, but we've also been, you know, treating fevers since we figured out how to you know, strip the bark off trees and grind it into a tea. <laughs> it's probably okay, though. Yeah, it's like a lot of things in medicine, you know. I mean, in some ways, um, if the patient's uncomfortable, go ahead and do it. Because I, I think this is actually reassuring that they weren't harmed by this. They didn't have worse outcomes. I think that's what I would take from this. All right. Gary, over to you. All righty. Um, I'm sure these have been... Uh, both in the medical literature, certainly, as well as in the more popular advertisement, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, TV, etc., the SGLT2 inhibitors, and um, those along with the GLP-1 agonist, which I think last month or two months ago we had a um, abstract on that, are some of the new that started out as being uh, primarily new armamentarium, new pharmacotherapies for diabetes. What's happening now is with a lot of these studies, the um, um, researchers are starting to look for more uh, 
more robust and perhaps more, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, different types of inclusion criteria. So this uh, study asked the question, is treatment with uh, SGLT2 inhibitors effective in decreasing hospitalization for patients with heart failure independent of diabetes? And I think that's kind of the new um, kind of way that a lot of these uh, studies are going. This was published in the Annals of Material Medicine by Zhao in 2022. It was a meta-analysis of eight randomized controlled trials that enrolled about 15,000 patients who, who had heart failure who were followed up for at least six months. Uh, and what they basically found was is that those who were given the GSGLT2 inhibitors versus placebo, remember these were randomized controlled trials, had fairly robust improvements in decreasing rates of hospitalization for heart failure. Uh, and again, they had some time limited or some, some time specific uh, stats, but the basic stat is it decreased heart failure hospitalizations by about a third up to about two years. Uh, also decreased cardiovascular death by about uh, you know, 15% out at the end of one year or so. Uh, interestingly, they didn't have an effect on all-cause mortality. And uh, one of the outcomes for this particular analysis, they also looked at a renal outcome. They didn't find any specific effect on, uh, on renal disease as well. They did note that, uh, which is well known with these SGLT2 inhibitors, since they enhance glucose excretion, that there was a twofold increase in what they referred to as genital infections without being more specific. Uh, so I think this is one of many um, either independent studies or an aggregate of studies such as a meta-analysis such as this that are really uh, pointing to an, an, an enhanced use of these medications for specific um, illnesses and diseases independent of, of, of diabetes. I might add that the uh, American Heart Association just this year updated their uh, heart failure guidelines, and they now recommend SGLT2 inhibitors with a 1A recommendation, strong recommendation, high quality evidence in patients with heart failure for reduced ejection fraction, in addition to your traditional ANRIs, your ACEs, ARBs, beta blockers, and, and appropriate patients, uh, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists as well. Um, so not a big surprise. Um, one of the things that was surprising to me in this study was that it did not seem to have, uh, at least they couldn't find in this study, renal protective effect. But I'm going to tell you that the American Heart, American Diabetes, Diabetes Association specifically, uh, they make a very clear recommendation that the SGLT2 inhibitors decrease the risk of chronic kidney disease progression. So I don't know why there's a discrepancy there. Long story short, um, more good news, I guess, for the SGLT2 inhibitors. So I'm, you know, more or less all the way on board with this. I think it is interesting that the more data that we seem to have, um, and I guess this isn't surprising, but the more data we seem to have, the, the sort of smaller some of the effects seem to be, um, or sort of the less impressive um, the SGLT2s seem to get. So, you know, risk of hospitalization, I'll take it, you know, it's certainly an outcome worth avoiding. Um, but, you know, I give me those mortality, you know, outcomes that that's what I really want to see. I want to see the mortality outcomes. I want to see those other, you know, quality of life outcomes. Um, and it's it is a little bit worrisome that, again, the more data we get, the, the less robust some of those cardiovascular and, and mortality outcomes seem to get. And again, that that's not uncommon. That is how it seems to get. But the problem is that it's hard to walk back those 1A recommendations that once it sort of gets into the 
you know, the, the consciousness um, of the practitioners, it's, it's just hard to walk those back. You know, you get a, a generation of people who, you know, treat to a target of, uh, you know, an LDL target of 70, and it's hard to convince us that uh, you don't have to do that anymore. Um, and I think it, it could be the same thing here, that if we actually see, oh, in the next iteration of those guidelines, you know, maybe it's only a 2B recommendation, or maybe it's just not as good as we thought it was, that we're still going to have a whole generation of people who, um, or even 10 years worth of, of recommendations to, to really push these. So, uh, so we'll see um, for the time being. It's, you know, certainly something that probably a lot of people, you know, even if it's just people with diabetes, with, you know, heart failure, with reduced ejection fraction, even if it's strong evidence for those folks only, um, probably something worth knowing. Henry? I, I remain skeptical. About you're, 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 the, you're the resident therapeutic nihilist. You've <laughs> well, taken over John's role. <laughs> so so it, it may very well be true that, the, that this stuff really works. But here's at least part of my skepticism. So the author of this poem points out that there's a previous meta-analysis that had fewer studies um, that did not find a, 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 an overall benefit on mortality. This meta-analysis included eight trials with 15,000 patients just a couple of weeks ago. And I have not dug into this paper yet, um, but it's, a, it's one that I will, will be writing up for Palm. Just a couple of weeks ago in Lancet was a meta-analysis, not a systematic review. They selected five specific trials and they had over 22,000 participants. So fewer studies, but more participants than what we find in this uh, meta-analysis. In that uh, uh, overall summary, there was a reduction in all-cause mortality in those trials, reduced cardiovascular deaths and first hospitalizations, even in people who have preserved ejection fractions. Sounds pretty good, but what did I do? I just did a real quick and dirty search at clinicaltrials.gov for heart failure and SGLT2 inhibitors. Guess how many trials are out there? 113. Of those 113, 36 are completed, and yet we have these meta-analyses that only include five or four or eight studies. So I think there's much more data that's out there. We don't know the full story yet. Sometimes I think I'd like to make a career out of doing meta-analyses without systematic reviews. Because I feel like I could get rich like that. You yeah. can make those papers say whatever you want them to. <laughs> it's all about what you include. <laughs> all right. Interesting one. I think we're going to keep talking about these SGLT2 inhibitors. I think uh, we have not written the bottom line on those just yet. All right. Uh, time for the answer to the quiz. So uh, briefly, the question uh, was about a recent article showing that uh, it's actually a research letter, not a full article, uh, showing low quantities, concentrations of particles of mRNA after uh, vaccination with an mRNA containing uh, COVID vaccine in uh, patients who are lactating. And the question is, what does this translate to in understandable terms? Should breastfeeding parents avoid getting mRNA vaccines? Should breastfeeding parents pump and dump after doing so? Are babies being po poisoned? Should everybody be very afraid? Or is it not clear if there's clinical harm being done? So first and foremost, it is clear that vaccination does produce antibodies that are transmitted to breastfed infants, which is protective in babies who are too young to be vaccinated. So that is one clear public health benefit of uh, receiving an mRNA vaccine while, while lactating. This study showed an occasional, so again, seven of 131 samples, um, occasional low level of transmission of mRNA 
particles. And it's important to remember that mRNA is notoriously unstable. That was one of the issues of, of the science of the mRNA vaccine. They're also tiny. Uh, they're about 60 nanometers big. And a peak gram is one trillionth of a gram. And my husband, who is a particle physicist, was actually fact-checking me. He said that was a quadrillionth of a gram. Um, so somebody can, can Google that quickly for me. And either way, they're very, very small. Um, so the concentration of 11 picograms per milliliter is 11 trillions or quadrillions of a gram per milliliter. And I struggled to convert this to anything understandable because our brains don't do things that small. We don't really even do the metric system, let's be honest, unless we're like Canadian. Mark's not here this week. Um, but it boils down to, uh, we worked this out, my husband and I did, something approximately the mass of a mosquito in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Um, this is what we do on our evenings alone together. <laughs> Exciting um, evenings. <laughs> you have no idea. Uh, so even if this was something highly pathogenic, which mRNA isn't, it's hard to conclude clinical relevance from, from these results. Um, and that actually is what the, what the authors of this research letter concluded. They could stating they could not draw any conclusions about either the pathogenicity or the immunogenicity. Um, of those particles. And then finally, it's important, these were in the breast milk. So the only exposure would potentially be something that, that an infant would be swallowing um, and then potentially would immediately be, be broken down. So um, the same authors actually found the opposite results um, in, a, in a letter published a couple of months ago. Um, so look, going forward, we can hopefully find that there'll be uh, bigger studies that, that deliberately include um, breastfeeding parents to actually answer some of these questions. But if you see this one in the news or in your social media feeds, please just remember um, you're, you're talking about something, um, the mass of a mosquito in an Olympic-sized swimming pool um, in, uh, in seven of 131 of the possible samples. So this is not, um, this is, this is not open and shut science. So. Uh, I didn't have a, uh, an art and literary recommendation plan, but essentially everything I know about mRNA vaccines, um, I learned from a book called Long Shot, which was about the making of the mRNA vaccines. Um, and it's fascinating, and I recommend it if you enjoy reading about how people make vaccines. Um, but it, it kept me hooked. I was reading it, and my kids were interrupting me, and I said, I can't find out. I can't do this thing until I find out if they make the vaccine. And my kids were like, you, you know made the vaccine. This is actual, this is reality. So just to be clear, you didn't know what the outcome of that was? <laughs> I was, I was on the edge of my seat waiting to find out, did they make it or not? But they do. Sorry for the spoilers. Um, all right. Well, thanks everyone for listening today. If you uh, want your CME credit again, it's IAFP.com and click on the IAFP education webpage. The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. The IAFP designates this podcast for 0.5 AMA Category 1 credit. The IAFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA. You can, if you want to, read our complete disclosure on the IAFP website. We hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends, and we'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.